Wildfires are scorching the West Coast, leaving behind a path of death and destruction. Forecasters call it a bomb cyclone. Winds of 150 miles per hour. Tens of millions of Americans are dealing with dangerously high temperatures, with many areas hitting triple digits. Scientists say climate change is worsening flooding around the world. This is going to get really ugly really fast here. Hi there, my name is David Knowles. I'm a senior editor at Yahoo News, and our guest today on the podcast is climate scientist Klaus Jacob. Klaus is uh, on the faculty at Columbia University and works at the Earth Institute studying climate change. Klaus is a pretty interesting and colorful fellow. Ben, you interviewed him for the podcast. Tell me what you what you like about talking to him. Yeah. Klaus Jacob is, is an interesting guy to talk to because he's he's sort of a doomsayer, but he's focused on something that gets less attention from most people thinking about climate change, which is how will the places that we live adapt to the changes? He is, of course, an advocate of cutting greenhouse gas emissions and limiting the warming, but he's studying and telling the public about how much danger there's going to be of extreme weather events causing massive damage in very populated urban areas within a few decades. He's talking about sea level rise and what it'll mean for cities and how to how to address it. And it's complicated. He has helped advise New York City specifically about its future and how to deal with climate change and how to you know do mitigation to to make the effects worse. He's a funny guy because he has these controversial opinions like maybe it's not worth spending the money to protect lower Manhattan from what is going to be an inevitable sea level rise. And as a New Yorker yourself, what do you think of when you hear somebody who's a scientist saying, hey, maybe it's better to let lower Manhattan be and let it sink underwater, let Wall Street go? Well, it's very interesting because the instinctive reaction of everyone in New York after Hurricane Sandy flooded Lower Manhattan, um, which is something that Klaus had said would happen, the instinctive reaction is, well, we need to prevent that from happening again. We need to protect that area by building up barriers to absorb the storm surges. And that's what New York has embarked on. And his point isn't even necessarily that we shouldn't do it, but just that the plans that we've made to do it thus far are only enough to account for the next few decades of sea level rise, and that there's going to be a lot more in the latter half of this century. And so it's only a temporary solution. And in the maybe you do it anyway and abandon Wall Street in 2060, right? Not now. But there are all different kinds of ways you could play it. But he just wants people to think about how are we going to prepare for the reality of 2080, not just 2050, and how much will it cost to build those barriers? And does it make more sense than, you know, what are we trying to accomplish with that? And does it make more sense to just, you know, retreat to higher ground or to let the water in and adapt to it, to move all the operations of buildings up to the third floor and ride on canals and turn the streets into canals and it'll be like Venice. And those are all very interesting possibilities to explore. And I think it's so hard for New Yorkers to imagine New York without Wall Street, but the city has changed so much before 
Midtown is actually where you know more of the financial firms are headquartered at this point, not downtown. The media companies, when I was starting out in journalism, were mostly in Midtown. Now that real estate is so expensive, they're moving back to the Wall Street area because it's cheaper. So the city's constantly changing and evolving. And I think that having an open mind to different ways of adapting to climate change is, is a good idea. Joining us today is Klaus Jacob, special research scientist at the Lamont Darty Earth Observatory at the Earth Institute, an adjunct professor at Columbia University here in New York City. He is a renowned earthquake, disaster, and climate expert who served on the mayor's New York City panel on climate change for more than 10 years. He has worked to make cities disaster resilient in Venezuela, Turkey, Ghana, and Vietnam, among other nations. Thank you for joining us. You're welcome. In the more than 50 years you've been at Columbia, what are the most notable climate changes that you've observed here in New York City and some of the other cities you've worked in, and how are they caused by global warming? Well, we realize the climate change, normally the slow changes, we don't really get them. So we realize climate change by its extreme events, like Katrina, in New Orleans, Harvey, Houston, Sandy in New York City, and internationally, there are similar events in the Philippines and so on. That's when we really become aware of it. Now, each of those extreme events is actually not itself as a singular event. It's not an indication of climate change. But if you take them all together, you see that these extreme events that become more and more severe disasters in their impact actually increase in frequency and severity. And that's how we, as human beings, unfortunately, only realize it when it hits us. Scientists have methods that show how climate is changing, namely global warming, warmer oceans, warmer atmosphere, heavier rainfall, and so on. But as a species, human species, we see it only in those extreme events and wake up. Can you just explain for our audience the mechanism by which things like Hurricane Katrina and Superstorm Sandy were made more likely to occur or more severe or more frequent because of higher average global temperatures. You mentioned warmer ocean water, but if you could just sort of explain the mechanism by which that leads to more severe storms, that would be helpful. There are several mechanisms in which climate change shows up that make those storms more extreme and more impactful. The first one is we have global warming due to the greenhouse gases that we put in the atmosphere. Global warming shows up in different forms. First, the atmosphere gets warmer, and then gradually that heat gets transferred into the ocean. The ocean gets warmer, and that's when it gets interesting because there are multiple effects from having a warmer ocean. One is it's a little bit like you turn off on the gas under your water pot on the stove. If the fire underneath is a little bit warmer, more of the water evaporates. 
So the ocean evaporates faster, meaning we're getting more water vapor in the atmosphere. And as wind system transport all that water vapor into colder areas, northerly areas, and they hit cold area, then you get these incredible rainstorms that are often combined with hurricanes, but not all of the heavy rainfalls are due to hurricanes. So it's one effect. We get more moisture in the air if we have warmer oceans. The other effect of the global warming is as the ocean gets warmer, it expands. So the ocean gets bigger, meaning the sea level is rising. And if you now sit in New Orleans and the ocean is rising, and now you have storms on top of it, as sea level rises, you need only smaller and smaller storms to reach the same elevation in New Orleans or New York City or anywhere else where we have storms. And so you get much more frequent flooding. For New York City, I know the numbers quantitatively. Given the sea level rise, what is right now a 100-year storm will be, by the end of the century, a 10-year storm. That's at least a 10 times larger risk. And that's the lower bound. It could be as high as 70 times higher risk. You famously predicted that a storm like Superstorm Sandy would devastate New York City. What is the next climate-related natural disaster that you are most concerned about, either in New York or elsewhere? Well, one thing that is not fully appreciated in terms of the human impact, not so much on the built environment, but in a human impact, are those extreme heat waves. More people in the US die from extreme heat than from flooding, okay? That needs to be considered. Now, if you go by the money, flooding outweighs heat waves by a large amount. So depending on what hazard or risk you're really interested in and focused on, you have to do different things. For the heat waves, we need more cooling places where people can go to, or you provide those who can't afford it, air conditioning at their home. So that is an issue that has to be solved. Also, you can plant more trees and make green roofs that reduce the urban heat island effect because cities are much warmer because the concrete stores a lot of heat that doesn't give away in the night. And if you plant more green stuff in the streets and on roofs, then you reduce that heat island effect, which makes those extreme heat waves a little bit more acceptable. Since Sandy, New York has spent a lot on making its low-lying waterfront subway stations more resilient to storm surges. But now we see stations all over the city are flooding from heavy rains. What should New York City do about that? Well, you know, it's very human. We always fix the last disaster rather than looking forward what we can do proactively rather than reactively. Yes, 
the MTA, the Metropolitan Transportation Authority, has gotten federal money to uh, in the order of about you know, a couple of billion dollars to secure many of the stations that got flooded during Sandy by either having permanent gates and doors installed or frames put in that before the water comes, you have to insert certain things. Anyhow, it is fair to say that if those things work the way they were designed, and there's a good chance that they will, there will be a wonderful reduction in the case of a recurrence for Sandy. But as you pointed out, now we have also rain events, not just coastal storm surges. And the rain falls, of course, at all elevations, not just at the lower elevations, like uh, where the water comes during storm surges. And so many of the subway stations got flooded during Ida, Harvey, and storms before, and again in the future. We're actually at higher elevations in local valleys, but at high elevation in upper Manhattan, uh, in higher lying parts of Bronx, Queens, and Brooklyn, but in local depression at high elevations where the water collected. Now, that is an issue that can be addressed in multiple ways. Each one costs money, and each one uh, has to be taken care of by a different agency. We shouldn't have street flash flooding in the first place. That's the responsibility of the, in New York City, for instance, the Department of Environmental Protection, DEP, but also of the Department of Transportation to make sure that the road curbs are oriented the, the right way and all that sort of stuff. But also the sanitation department, because they have to make sure that the street gutters are actually not clogged with leaves, plastic, or whatever else debris that people leave on the streets. So that's one way. The other way is to say, oh, hold on. Why don't we make more parks, more flower beds, rain gardens, and put actually gardens on rooftops so the rain doesn't just run off and we make the streets and parking lots permeable. So we don't need all those fixes to the sewer system. We provide less rain so we don't have to spend that much money to re-engineer our sewer system or our wastewater treatment plants. So there are these multiple ways in dealing with these issues. You mentioned planting trees and other permeable surfaces for New York and cities in general to absorb more water. But as I understand it, the East Side Coastal Resiliency Project that is intended to protect lower Manhattan by building out parks, elevated parks that would block storm surges, hopefully, in theory at least, block storm surges and absorb rain, water, you've been skeptical of and said that instead the financial district in lower Manhattan should be abandoned. Why do you think that? And where else in the United States do you think simply will have to be abandoned because of climate change? Uh... That's not exactly what I'm saying, okay? So 
let's look at what's happened in lower Manhattan. There's the so-called Big U project that wraps like a U around lower Manhattan. And it's broken up into five or six different projects. Each one has its own legislation and financing because Battery Park is one segment, for instance. That's not even city property, that's state property, okay? So there's a state project and so on. So there's piecemeal approach to this protection of lower Manhattan and it will work probably for a while, certainly for a couple of decades. The design of the seawalls and parks related to that seawall and the Lower East Side of Manhattan has plans for taking into account the sea level rise only out to the year 2050, okay, and a 100-year storm. So that's a relatively low level of risk projection. Sandy was a 700-year storm. So we still will have storms that will overcome those barriers, if not in the next few decades, then certainly towards the end of the century, when sea level rise will be five, six feet, okay? Or in the extreme case, as the New York City Panel on Climate Change has said, there is even a rapid ice melt scenario for the Arctic, Antarctic that may give us eight to nine feet of sea level rise. Well, that's more than the storm surge of Sandy. And that's permanent. And then you have storms on top of it. So these protective measures that we see around lower Manhattan have a finite lifetime in which they can protect us. And my fear is that if we build those things, people say, oh, now we are safe. No, we are not safe. We are somewhat better protected we are not safe. We simply have postponed the problem to be paid for by future generations, and that's not fair. So that's an intergenerational inequity that we put more burden on future generations in solving the ultimate problem, which then may mean that they have to give up lower Manhattan in the financial district. But here's a, another major point. I'm actually not so much worried about Wall Street and Lower Manhattan. Those folks, those firms know how to take care of themselves. They know what their risk is. And when it gets too risky with more and more sea level rise come up, they're the first ones to leave Lower Manhattan on their own. So we don't have to relocate them. They relocate themselves because they have the resources to do it and they're aware of the risk. What I'm worried about is the people that don't have the resources and are in the way of sea level rise, like the Lower East Side, that's public housing or affordable housing. And they will be protected also for a few decades. But then we have to be postponed the problem. So I'm not saying we shouldn't build those things, but we have to be aware is that there are temporary solutions that buy us a little bit of time, a couple of decades, maybe even five decades, if we are lucky. 
but they are not the ultimate solution. So the ultimate solution we simply have postponed. But is the ultimate solution building higher seawalls or that are account for potential no. sea rise later in the century, or is it You have fundamentally else? three different options to approach this whole problem of rising sea level and related to storm surges as well. The first is protection, okay? So you build sea walls or sea barriers and sea gates like the Dutch have or the, the Thames barrier or St. Petersburg has, and even Venice has got them now, okay? But again, they are only temporary solutions. Why? Because let's assume we built this barrier that the US Army Corps of Engineers proposed that will go from Sandy Hook in New Jersey over to Coney Island in New York, across the outer harbor, and you know, several mile long, just like the Dutch have been building. That's engineering wise possible. It may cost maybe $60 billion. Someone has estimated maybe 100 to $120 billion. Whatever the price tag is, you can build those things. You even can build them such that the ship traffic can get slow in, in and out, no problem. But here is the real problem. These things are only good to keep storm surges out. In other words, normally those gates are open and when a storm comes, you close them. But now we have sea level rise. So when sea level rise becomes comparable to the height where at current sea level we would close them for storm surges, now six, eight feet, which would be towards the end of the century, you would have to permanently close those gates to keep the ocean out. Well, what then happens is the following. We have a Hudson River and we have a Raritan River that wants to get out to the ocean. So you get flooded from behind. So for sea level rise, those barriers are not good at all. They still at high sea level can keep storm surges out for a couple of hours or maybe a day or two at most, but they don't keep sea level rise out because the rivers want to get out to the ocean. So again, we have only a temporary solution in what we postpone those serious problems. Now, how do we deal with the issue if we can't do it through protection? Well, there are two ways that are left. One is what I call accommodation. You don't move your skyscrapers. You just give up the basement of the skyscraper on the first floor, maybe the second floor, and move to higher ground. And function only in the higher, which means you have to put the whole infrastructure, electric, cooling, all these things in higher floors. So you lose some rentable space. So what? Okay. But now you have the problem. People want to get in and out of the building. And the garbage needs to be picked up too, which means we have to do that by barges or we have amphibian taxis, you know, boats that we bring the people to the buildings or a smarter way would be we build an awful lot of high lines to connect all those skyscrapers. We have one high line that does that. Well, let's build many of those high lines 
And underneath on Wall Street, there will be water and the geese and the ducks float around on Wall Street and we walk on the High Line to our office. It's all conceivable. It's a little bit fantastic, but you know, you ask me what solutions do we have if we don't protect? That's one solution. Now comes the third option. The third option is we get to higher ground. Miami Beach doesn't have higher ground. Forget them. New York City has higher ground. In Brooklyn, in the Bronx, portions of Queens, and yes, in Manhattan, and definitely in Staten Island. So people are still building on the waterfront. How short-sighted is that? If I would be a speculative real estate developer, I would make sure I develop all on high ground. That's interesting. One thing I want to ask you about is the difference it will make if nations take action to limit climate change, to reduce greenhouse gas emissions that are causing the warming. For example, if, I mean, the goal set in Paris in 2015 was one and a half degrees Celsius. That's very unlikely that we'll stay below that. But if uh, the fallback, let's say, of two degrees of warming, if the world stayed below that, and we've had about 1.2 degrees of Celsius of warming since the Industrial Revolution so far, you know, as opposed to taking no action and warming three degrees or more by the end of this century, what difference does that make yeah. in terms of the problems you're talking about? How much less bad is the sea level rise, storm surges, all of these extreme weather, all of that? The interesting thing is that regardless of whether we do business as usual, stay somewhat in the higher ranges above the Paris Agreement or at the Paris Agreement, which was a minimum of a maximum of two degree in which we centigrade that we stabilize the atmospheric temperature, average temperature, or the goal was actually to uh, keep it down to 1.5 degrees Celsius. It, all these different options don't make much difference in the next few decades because we have front-loaded our atmosphere already with so many greenhouse gases that even if we were totally stopping any greenhouse gas emissions, today we still would get sea level rise at least out to the end of the century, and then it would start to slow down, still increase, but it would slow down in its increase. And now, depending on where we stabilize the atmospheric average temperature, we now get different endpoint sea level rises at different elevations. It's probably fair to say that by the year, not 2100, but 2200, we probably see at least 10 feet of sea level rise. 10 feet, three meters. Well, that's way above where Sandy was hitting us. And that's on a nice sunny day. And then you have storms on top of that. So, I mean, our urban layout, whether it's New York City, Houston, San Francisco, you name it, and don't speak of Dakar and Bangladesh and Mumbai and Yenya or Tokyo or you name it. You know, we are in deep, deep, deep problems. So 
that's 10 feet. Now we keep doing things not fast enough on the emission side. We keep using oil and gas and hopefully not coal. Then we get higher and higher endpoints of sea level rise. And you know, some projections are just absolutely mind-boggling, 20 and 30 feet of sea level rise if we would keep doing business as usual. Sure, that will be not this century, not this century. It will be 500,000 years from now. But that's what we do to those future generations. And that's the unfairness. We are reaping the short-term benefits and make future generations pay for our nastiness. Okay, That's intergenerational inequity. What about basement flooding, you know, in houses? Like we talked a lot about business districts with skyscrapers, but we saw with uh, the last hurricane in New York City, 13 people died being trapped in flooded basements and flooding in residential streets and in basements of houses is a big problem in many places in the country. Uh, A lot of cities in the Midwest, the Great Lakes region, just from heavy storms, you know, heavy, heavier rainfall. What do you um, think needs to be done to protect people's mm. lives and property from that as it gets worse, as it continues to get worse, as you say? Will. Well, another example for very heavy rainfalls that impacted the city was storm uh, Hurricane Harvey for Houston, for instance. So, What do those storms have in common where we get these incredible rainfalls and some meteorologists call them actually rain bombs, okay? Uh, Where you get bombarded uh, with rain. It's not just rain, it's a rain bomb. Well, we have in this country adopted an arbitrary level of risk by which we design, which is actually an accident that never should have happened. And it happened before a certain time by, we didn't know better. And then in the 1960s, we invented something called the National Flood Insurance Program, NFIP, which is operated by FEMA. And it took an arbitrary number, namely the annual probability of 1% per year, which is the so-called 100-year storm, as a measure by which you would buy in for flood insurance. So it's that 1% flood zone that was mapped out and people have to build so they can survive this 1% flood. And if not, then they get bailed out if they have the national flood insurance. That's an arbitrary number. Mother Nature doesn't care whether we adopt 1% or 0.2%, which is a 500-year flood. The Dutch, for instance, in some areas have not taken the 100 or 500-year flood. Believe it or not, in high-risk, high-density areas like Rotterdam and Amsterdam, they take a 10,000-year storm. Okay? That's two orders of magnitude lower risk that they are exposed to. So we have, by some accident, 
some consultants for FEMA decided we map out the 1% year flood zone. And suddenly this has become sort of the norm for building codes and everything else. And that's what we see today because mother nature progresses in the face of global warming and climate change. And the 100 year storm suddenly becomes a 10 year storm and a five year storm. And a 100 year rain becomes suddenly a 10 year rain or a five year rain. So these are arbitrary numbers and we have to adjust and become risk aware rather than hazards aware, meaning the hazard is a certain flood level or flood probability. We have to be risk aware. That means what are the dollars that we are losing every year or by these extreme events? And because we only were hazards aware rather than risk aware, that's what we are paying for right now. But I mean, if, if you were advising the city of Houston or the city of Detroit or the city of New York as to what to do about the fact that these more frequent and intense heavy rains are coming and are flooding the streets and the basements, what would you advise them? I know you've mentioned, you mentioned green roofs and more parks and tree plantings, but I guess I'm just wondering what else you might suggest, if anything. Yeah, well, you have to develop a comprehensive plan, not piecemeal approach, okay? And so you have a whole portfolio of options in this comprehensive approach of which the permeable surfaces and parks and all that is one element in it. You have other elements. You, for instance, could buy out those people that were flooded out in Queens and say, we give you the value of your house and you find another place to build your home. That's one option. Another option would be that you give the money to raise those houses. You have to give up your basement. You put your house on a new foundation, maybe stilts, whatever. And at least the house would be safe. Now, that still means you might lose your car that you have parked on your front lawn. And so you also have addressed the sewer collection and runoff problem at the same time. So you have a whole portfolio and you have to make a cost benefit analysis to see what is in any given neighborhood the optimal solution. Now, here comes the trick. Optimal solution for what time period? You can make short-term solutions that are good for a few decades, but again, then, with climate change marching into ever more severe weather situations too, there will come a future time where you still then have to maybe move and abandon those areas. So I am very much in having this comprehensive plan with all the different portfolio options combined with a short, mid and long-term vision where the short to mid-term versions hopefully work in tandem, hand in hand with the long-term solutions rather than just invest in short-term fixes that then become a problem later on. What do you think about the outlook for New York City? Are you optimistic that it will be a healthy place in 100 years, that the subway will still be able to function? 
I think the subway problem can be solved. It's an engineering problem. So that's the least thing I'm worried about. With money, you can fix the problem. It only costs money, okay? Now, the other solutions, moving entire neighborhoods, that costs more than money. That costs political capital, the willingness of communities, and that is much harder to achieve. Engineers can fix the subway, but can engineer fix the communities? No. It has to be a confluence from the bottom up, from the will of the community, working with government from top down, together with financial resources. And it has to come together from the bottom, from the top, and money from all over to solve this problem. And that's why you need a comprehensive vision, translate that into comprehensive plan, comprehensive financing. We haven't looked how much all this money is needed. And you know we are talking it's too expensive in Congress right now, a lousy a few trillion dollars. It's a lousy few trillion dollars compared to the problem. And we can't get that done. Well, good morning, America. I mean, in a few years and decades, we will have to spend tens of trillions of dollars and nationwide $100 trillion or more. And that's what global warming is all about. And if the public and the politicians don't understand that, well, good luck. With the Glasgow UN climate negotiations coming up, the successor to Paris, adaptation is an increasingly large part of those negotiations, most of it focused on the developing world and the lack of resources that they have to deal with some of these problems. Do you have anything that you would like to see happen in the next climate agreement that is negotiated there with regard to adaptation or anything else? Just what I described right now for a city like New York City or any other major city, that we need a comprehensive plan. We need a comprehensive global plan that works both on the mitigation side, namely to reduce the greenhouse gases as quickly as possible and get that financed internationally, not just in the main emitters, nations like US, China, Brazil, Europe, and maybe India. But we also have to address that on the adaptation side. And just think of nations like Bangladesh or Vietnam that have tens and hundreds of millions of people that by the end of the century will have to be moved, period. There's no way out of it. We have that baked already in, even if we stay with Paris. So you, again, need a comprehensive vision and add up both the financial costs and the social costs, because if not, good luck. If you speak of refugees and we can't take a few Haitians into this country, then they come by the tens and hundreds of millions. Thank you. This is uh, very sobering, uh, as you would expect, but very, very interesting. And I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today. Dr. Klaus Jacob, scientist and in seismology, geology, and tectonophysics. 
uh, at the Earth Institute at Columbia University. Thank you. Well, I'm not sure I should say it was my pleasure, but uh, <laughs> it was certainly my duty to say what I felt I need to say. Thank you.